you know, Philip Morris at one point threatened Togo with this kind of arbitration. And Philip Morris's net revenue for 2020 is 10 times the GDP of Togo. So if you have that kind of power imbalance, you have an inherent threat to the state's ability to do what it's supposed to do. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. Hi, this is Asymmetrical Haircuts and I'm Stephanie van den Berg. Hello, I'm Janice Anderson. And today we're looking at a topic that we really know very little about. Well, I'm sure I know very little about. It's Investor State Dispute Settlements or ISDS. And that's an acronym that we'll come back to again and again. And it's really becoming a thing that we hear more and more about, uh, especially amongst people who are critical of globalization. So we invited Dr. Tara Van Ho, a senior lecturer at Essex Law School and co-director of the Essex Business and Human Rights Project. Hi, Tara. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me on here. You're very welcome. I'm very excited to talk about it. Um, to give you an idea of how little I know, I googled ISDS to get a handle on how to start with this episode, and I got massively sidetracked by the wonderful site of the International Sheepdog Society. They have a lovely calendar filled with wonderful border collies. That's actually a much nicer site to be going on than anything that actually deals with the ISDS we're talking about today. Come on, Stephanie, get off your border collies, get on with the intro so you can tell us what it really is. So what I found in my Google adventures is that the central idea of the ISDS is that as a part of trade agreements, governments give foreign or multinational companies the right to bypass the national legal system of that country and instead go to a kind of secretive tribunal of usually highly paid uh, lawyers and judges, often experts in corporate law in case of a dispute. Procedures are often not public. And this kind of uh, ISDS started to be included in trade agreements since the 1960s, but it has grown massively since. Now, Tara, would you say that that is a fair description? That is a very accurate description, and it is absolutely as absurd and as dangerous as it sounds when you put it like that. Wow. Um, Well, maybe before we delve into what your critique is, could we just maybe mention that there might be some benefits to this? I mean, maybe there are some benefits for the companies. Maybe there are some benefits to the states. There must be a reason why they're doing it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's evolved to become what it is now. But the underlying assumptions actually had a good intention to them. So the idea was that by facilitating an international oversight of how states treat corporations when they go in, you could protect the corporations from um, abusive practices by states. And what that would do then is facilitate and encourage foreign direct investment. The idea was that if companies started to invest uh, in a variety of different states, it would provide economic development and that would be beneficial for states as a whole. Now, there are questions and it's, it's deeply debated in the literature whether or not any of those promises or beliefs have come to fruition. But what's happened in the meantime is that the system has evolved in a way that's starting to constrain states' ability to respond to things like climate change, COVID-19, and other human rights concerns. So how did we get to this, uh, from that ideal of um, 
the current situation where this ICS is being used by some companies essentially to seems like influence government policies to discourage uh, smoking. I saw one with Philip Morris Asia uh, to stop nuclear energy with the, uh, a case in Germany. And, and can you kind of explain also how companies do that? What are the cases we're talking about when we, when we give those examples? Sure. So I think part of why we've evolved to what we have is because investment law has always suffered a bit of an identity crisis. It is public international law because it's established primarily by treaties. It can also be established by contracts, but it's primarily one that's treaty-based. And it deals with what states are doing in their regulatory space. So it has a very public international law foundation to it. But it's been traditionally dominated by corporate lawyers who are much more familiar with commercial law. And so there's a there's a commercial law element to it. And this this relationship between the corporation and the state often has a commercial law feel. If you think about privatization of water services or of our energy services, that has a bit of a private law, commercial law feel to it. It's often negotiated through contracts. Those contracts are negotiated by corporate lawyers. So if you're coming from that side of things, then using something like commercial arbitration and the rules that, that were designed for that makes sense. But when, if you come at it, as I do, from the, from the public international law, international human rights law side of things, you sort of see it with a different lens. You see it much more in terms of how it's constraining states' abilities to respond to other obligations that the state has. And it does that because these big corporations, as you mentioned, Philip Morris with Uruguay, um, we've seen it with a number of water companies and energy companies with Argentina as it was going through a crisis. We're seeing it now as, as corporations decide how they're going to challenge COVID-19 restrictions that can limit their ability to do operations, so cruise ships, airports, uh, restaurants. What they do is they look at how the government's conduct has restrained their ability to make the profits they expected. If the constraint is significant enough, they can threaten to take these cases forward. The cases are extremely expensive to defend. States, on average, spend $8 million U.S. dollars to defend the case before we even get to the kinds of reparations orders that can, be, that can be awarded. When the reparations orders come through, they're usually in the millions of dollars, uh, they can go up to over a billion dollars. At one point, these kinds of cases threatened to bankrupt Argentina, but they also threatened to have a significant impact, maybe not bankrupt Russia, but come really close. To, to really destroying the Russian economy. And that's because, again, it, it has that commercial law bend. If you're, if you're talking about human rights, if you're talking about international criminal law, international, the normal forms of international justice at the ICJ, you're not getting into the kinds of awards that are meant to be damaging to the economy as a whole, meant to really harm the state. But when you're in the commercial law side of things, you're really focused on what has the company lost? How has the company been damaged? And that can rack up really fast. And it's within that that you sort of see this, this looming threat. You know, Philip Morris at one point threatened Togo with this kind of arbitration. And Philip Morris's net revenue for 2020 is 10 times the GDP of Togo. So if you have that kind of power imbalance, you have an inherent threat to the state's ability to do what it's supposed to do. I understand that the way you're describing it, we're talking about a massive power imbalance between corporations and governments. But I'm wondering what the actual impact of ISDS 
can be on the ground uh, in some of these these countries because I mean you're coming from the human rights perspective, aren't you? So is there? I mean, there's the impact on the government, but what's the actual impact for on people? Well, it can mean mean that what states do is prioritize their obligations under investment law over their obligations for human rights. So if you look at a situation like Colombia, we've seen the Colombian government step back from regulating mining companies in a way that would protect human rights and and, um, respect the interests of people who are affected by the mining companies. Uh, And they they prioritize the mining companies because those are the ones that have the ability to go to these ISDS mechanisms. And the average community has nothing in that that's even comparable. You know, they have domestic courts, which will take into consideration the totality of the state's obligations. Uh, And they might get to go to the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, but that's not of an equivalent nature to the ISDS. So what we're seeing on the ground is actually that states, when they're forced to choose between the interests of the corporation and the interests of their citizens or the people on the ground, they're choosing the interests of the corporation because they have to. This might be an ignorant question, but one of the things I wonder is, do those um, ISDS agreements also mean that citizens uh, say that you're in Colombia and a mining company has a chemical spill? Could you then pursue that company through the local courts or do ISDS also kind of uh, shield that part of it? So that's where we're sort of starting to worry a little bit more. Um, you can sue... You can use the domestic courts to sue the corporation. So if a corporation is engaged in pollution, you can take them to the domestic court. You can't take them to ISCS. ISCS can only be initiated by the corporation. So the state can't do it, and the average citizen doesn't have access to it. So a state, if you have such an agreement and the state considers it has a dispute with the company, the state can't trigger it? It has to be the company? It has to be the company. Yeah. So uh, now there's there's starting to be a movement in which states can have counterclaims against a corporation, but you're still relying on the corporation to take the suit first. Uh, and then the citizens are dependent on the domestic court system. You can use ISCS to challenge how a court has treated you. So if you do use that domestic court system and you feel that it unduly favored the other side, it unduly favored the miners or, or sorry, the the workers in your your plant or the people who are affected by a chemical spill, you can challenge that before ICS. And we've seen that happen. Uh, and often with, with significant consequences for the state. And so what you're saying, or what it looks like now is the things, the mechanisms we have now um, really you know, do they give enough rights to the global south or are they really skewed towards corporations? That seems to be what you're saying, but I want to double check. Yeah, they are really skewed towards corporations and they have harmed the global south in a disproportionate way compared to the global north. Uh, In July 2020, the UN Conference on Trade and Development released a database of 1,016 known cases. There are cases, we don't know how many cases there are that we don't know about, but we know that there are cases that we don't know about, that that aren't being registered or aren't being publicly disclosed. But we have about, we have now over 1,000 cases that we do know about. Within that, only 317 were against uh, EU states or states in what the UN calls the Western Europe and other groups. So Canada, the US, Australia, New Zealand, and Israel. That might sound like a lot, but when you look at sort of how much 
inward foreign direct investment those states get, they actually, it's showing that they're really not, this hasn't traditionally been used against them. Most of the cases against those Western states have started since around 2014. And what that means is, is that you've really seen this used principally against the Global South, and the Global South doesn't necessarily have, um, I'm going to make a very broad sweeping generalization about the Global South, which includes a much more diversity than, than what this statement's going to sound. But you're gonna you're you're talking about it being used against Global South, who who has fewer resources than than Western Europe and other group states have, who um, have embedded biases within the arbitration system about their governance mechanisms. You know, it's this thing where the investment arbitrators are often looking for some regulatory stability within a state. How much have they changed the law? How much have they done something that the corporation didn't anticipate or expect. And if it's a state like Argentina that's doing it, the investment arbitrators tend to come down quite hard. If it's a state like the United States doing it, and let's be clear, I, I say this as an American, our governance is chaotic and ridiculous sometimes. But when it's the United States, that same um, expectation isn't there. And actually, we've had a case that suggests that if you enter into the United States, you should assume that there's some regulatory chaos. So there's a bit of a double standard sometimes in the case law, and, and that double standard is used against developing states uh, and for developed ones. And, and I'm wondering, what can developing states do? Because, well, I read, uh, I read a very interesting Economist article that uh, uh, named Brazil as an example because apparently they refuse to sign any uh, trade agreements which include... ISDS, and I was wondering, uh, you know, what you can say about the Brazilian example and what it shows. Yeah, so Brazil's in that boat. Um, India and South Africa have also started to review and, and have reviewed their uh, commitments to ISDS. One thing that they can do, one thing that developing states can do, is just exempt themselves from the system. You know, you don't have to be a part of ISDS. And I think the more states that do exempt and say, actually, we don't, we're not going to go down that route the more there will be a, um, an impetus for structural reform within the system itself, so that it becomes a part of the public international law discourse rather than the sort of mixture between public and, and commercial law interests. And what that can do then is facilitate greater recognition and inclusion of things like human rights and the environment in, in the substance of the decisions itself. The other thing is there is a movement to have more explicit investment treaties that do say that states are allowed to take into consideration the environmental obligations and human rights obligations. I don't advocate for that because we've seen the limitations of it. Last year, Colombia lost a case that was brought under the agreement between Colombia and Canada. That agreement very explicitly states that the states have a right to use to adopt environmental regulations and that if they do that won't constitute indirect expropriation and, and it's protected by the treaty when it went to the tribunal however the tribunal found that there's still too much chaos in how colombia regulated one of its environmental things and they awarded damages we don't know how much we're still waiting for how much they're going to award but they are going to award damages they have found that there was a breach of the treaty and it's going to cost also again colombia the cost of their defense and also the cost they will they will likely be ordered to pay the cost of the corporation's counsel as well. 
So their legal costs. Stephanie, right at the top, um, used the word secretive to describe these, and, and you didn't disagree with that, Tara. But I think the actual names of the different tribunals, etc., are known. Could you just run through some of the most important ones for us, you know, just to give us some insight? So there's the International Center for the Settlement of Investment Disputes, and that's a big one that's in D.C. It's based out of D.C. And what it does is it houses arbitration that are brought under investment treaties and only under investment treaties. Once you get past that, you get to the Stockholm Chamber of Commerce, the London Court of International Arbitration, the Permanent Court of International Arbitration. And those can be brought under the treaties, but they can also be brought under individual contracts between a state or an investor. Those are the most common ones, but you can actually bring these kinds of cases before any arbitral body within the world, generally speaking. It, it, I, I am making a huge generalization here of bringing in all the treaties and contract language, but generally what the treaty and contract language says is these cases can be brought to ICSID, that, that center in DC, or they can be brought to any other legitimate arbitral body. Are they all equally kind of protective of the of what they say about themselves, of how much information that, that they give out about what they're doing? No, so generally if a case is brought before ICSID, you will be able to find a reference to the case being filed. You might not be able to find any of the documents, you might not know what the case is about, but you'll know that there is a case that's pending. Once you get into some of the other tri tribunals, whether or not it's registered or not is something that the parties decide for themselves. How public is that information is something that the parties control. Uh, some of them allow for an opting in by the state, by the party, so they will require the parties to consent to anything being publicly disclosed. Some of them use an opt out, so we will register unless you tell us not to or unless one of the two parties objects. But it does mean that they are quite secretive. They're not all equally secretive, but there is some secretive nature there. We also, you also talked about the expense of it, and that uh, also was featured in the Economist article. You said that you know states have to pay for their defense. Yeah, so it is on average eight million U.S. dollars to defend. If a, a state loses, they're usually ordered to pay the costs of the corporation's defense, which can be another eight million. Um, sometimes these cases, the defense can go above thirty million. Um, at one point, I think it was the Philippines had, uh, spent more on defending a case than its annual budget for education. Uh, and that's, that's where a lot of the threat and the problem comes in. Um, so that's the average, the average amount of cases. And we're in The Hague, and a few years ago there was this outcry about international court judges, especially those at the International Court of Justice, the UN's highest court between uh, states, that were moonlighting on arbitration cases. Is that a problem? And if so, how big? And, and what are the issues that you can see? Yeah, it's not usual that what we're talking about are ICJ judges moonlighting. Um, or judges of an equivalent nature, right? We don't really see European Court of Human Rights justices, judges or, or um, inter-American court judges moonlighting on arbitration panels. So that's not the bigger issue. It does raise ethical questions, though, as to where your loyalties sit and, and how objective are you being in various cases where there could be a conflict between interests. And 
it's that conflict between interests that we do see that's more common. Uh, the common problem is you can have an arbitrator sitting as an arbitrator in, in case A and sitting as counsel for a corporation or for a state in case B. And those cases can be going at the same time. They can, un they can involve the same underlying issues. And in that case, whose actions are they operating in? You know, what, which motivations are guiding the, the arbitrator as they make decisions and as they make arguments? Because there isn't binding precedent within international investment arbitration. So there are oftentimes quite competing streams of thought within, within the jurisprudence. Um, but what you can see is that there is a thought, uh, they do like to rely on each other. They do like to invoke each other where they can. So if you have somebody who's sitting as counsel in one case and as an arbitrator in another, are they going to start using their powers and arbitrators that precedent that favors their client in the other case? And that's where there's some, some significant concern. One thing that occurs to me while we're talking about this and the secrecy and that you say, well, there's thousand cases we know of and there's all these cases we don't know of. It's like uh, Donald Rumsfeld and his known unknowns and unknown unknowns. How do you research this? What do you do? Like, do you meet secretive corporate lawyers in raincoats for coffee somewhere <laughs> who whisper to you that they have a case or there are documents? How do you chat? How do you do this research for this? No, it's a, it's a real problem. Um, I have yet to meet anybody in a secretive raincoat situation. Sadly, I actually kind of really want that now. Um, but what is, it is a problem because there are times in which people have access to information that the rest of us don't. And so they might write a post about it, they might um, advertise it, and the rest of us have to rely on their description of the case. Um, usually something will then come out more publicly later, but it does mean that there's a bit of a delay and, and a disparity of information and access to information. More frequently, those cases get lost as a point of academic inquiry, but they will often still influence the arbitrators and the arbitration council that were privy to that. And the arbitration council will use, will sometimes use it amongst themselves, right? So they, they often do, from what I understand, I'm not a part of that part of the world, uh, but they do share amongst each other kind of what the legal development is and what the legal arguments are. Sometimes when, when you talk uh, about, uh, when I read about international libel cases, there's a lot of talk of shopping around where people try to bring those cases in certain jurisdictions uh, because they have better uh, libel laws and you can get uh, better cases. It, I also saw somewhere that a corporation sometimes shop around for states and, and have, I don't know, like shell companies in a state so that they can trigger ISDS. Is, is that really a thing? And, and uh, um, what kind of countries are apparently very good to uh, get your shell company to get ISDS in? Yes, so that is a real thing. My friend and colleague Anilia Mesvestardis has written extensively about the issue of nationality within investment law cases. And she's found that there's not really any consistent framework as to what it means to be a state's national. So you can only bring ISDS cases if you're protected by a treaty or, or a contract that's your direct contract, but usually it's a treaty that your home state so your state of nationality has taken, has agreed to with your host state, the state where you're operating. So who's a national of your home state really does matter. Sometimes they require um, 
some sort of presence in the state to some sort of ongoing presence, so your headquarters or your, your registration office. Um, sometimes they don't. They It's just a, a post box. The Netherlands is one of the easiest to register with. It is one of the most frequent to use, and it has a lot of investment treaties, so it's a really good place if you're trying to think of how do you how do you restructure your corporation so you can access arbitration when you wouldn't be able to otherwise that's a good place to go belgium as well isn't a bad place to go um so those are the, those are where we see it kick a little bit more ah so we're really in the epicenter of isds without even knowing it yes <laughs> tara just as we come to towards the end of the podcast i wanted to ask you i'm sure we've missed asking you some important question what else should we have asked you well actually you guys covered the main points i will say that there are right now some ongoing efforts to reform the system we're not really sure what those efforts are going to come out to be but UNCTRAL, the un conference on international trade law is looking at how to reform the processes of investment law and right now the debate within that is quite wide varying you have people like me who say abolish the current system, give it a timeout like you would a child, and then come back and have have the real reform process of what do we want this to look like. Um, and then you have people who are looking at much more minor tweaks. How can you secure amicus curiae briefs in all cases? How can you consider um, third-party interests better? You also simultaneously have effort at the OECD that's looking at how we might reform the drafting of treaties to better secure the balance. Um, I, I have a little bit more hope there, uh, still not a ton of hope, but I do have more hope there um, because states have shown themselves capable outside of the investment arbitration circles. Uh, they've shown themselves capable of really creative drafting when they need to, to secure their own interest. In international human rights law, we have that balance between the individual and the community built into all of our treaties. Uh, and, and I think that states can come up with some really clear language uh, about that within the treaty drafting. So I, I have a lot of hope for the OECD process. You also simultaneously have the treaty discussion on a binding business and human rights treaty, where there they're looking at requiring states to uh, protect human rights within, better protect human rights within their investment and, and trade agreements. Um, so I have hope for that as well. That's I think that will be a much longer process, but I think that um, if we can secure that within the treaty, then it, it creates a better uh, impetus for, for allowing for those arguments to be within investment arbitration proceedings themselves. We talked about what did we miss, and you already talked a bit about that there are reforms coming. So how, how do you see the future of ISDS, and what is your ideal kind of situation, I guess, because the future is you hope for reforms, but if you could make them, what would they look like? So that's um, a really fun question to end on because I think, or maybe not end on, um, but I think that's a really fun question because I think for me, there's a wide range of possibilities as to what we can do with ISES. I don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing that we protect corporations' interests from abusive governments, right? I think that, that if you're a human rights lawyer, you are naturally skeptical of the abuse of state power. Um, and I am, and I think that we should have ways to challenge. 
But I think how we construct those ways, there needs to be a little bit more thought about the evenness of how we construct that across the international legal system. So before when I said I would give them a timeout, it's because what we know about how people operate when they go into jobs and how structures and institutions can kind of carry over legacy approaches, even if they aren't the same structure or even if they undergo some level of reform. I, I, I'm really concerned about how minor changes to the investment regime can actually just facilitate and entrench some of those broader abuses of the regime. So what I would like to see is actually a kind of closing down of the current regime and then a, a really thoughtful approach to how do we develop a system that allows for better balances between the corporation's interests, that commercial need to have some level of stability, um, predictability in the regime, with the state's other obligations towards environmental reforms and towards human rights. And I think that that requires a different kind of process than what we've seen. So what I would like to see is actually that. What I think is more realistic, what I think is going to happen instead, is that we're going to see um, some tweaks to the system that allow for individuals to take um, their interests before the before the tribunal as as not a participating party, but as um, a better represented party. I think what we'll also see is um, there's a movement within Europe to establish a multinational court, which would have some level of consistency to the judges that are creating the jurisprudence. Um, and if we can do that with the adequate protection and representation of international human rights lawyers and international environmental lawyers in those interests, I think that that could be an interesting approach going forward. So I think there are a lot of options on the table, and I think it's really important that states think through the multitude of options. And also, what is it that, that would really mean that they actually can balance their, their, the totality of their interests, the totality of their obligations in a sustainable way? Um, we try to switch up regularly the um, the questions that we ask everybody who comes uh, on the podcast. So uh, this is uh, the latest incarnation that uh, Stephanie's uh, come up with, but I get to ask it, which is, Tara, can you name, please, your favourite court case or your favourite arbitration case? You know, what's the, the one that, that, that really tickles you when you talk about it? <laughs> okay, so I'm... Uh, <laughs> I, I'm one of those people who actually like gets tickled most by the ones that I find the most absurd and insane. Um, so I think for me, my current favorite case is actually the Eco Oro case versus Colombia because it's that case that is about a treaty that says very clearly, of course, states can adopt environmental regulations. And then the tribunal says, well, I mean, you can, but not really. You still have to pay compensation if you do. So for me, that's actually right now probably my favorite want to talk about. Um, so the other uh, classic uh, asymmetrical haircuts question that we ask at the end is, uh, what are you reading, watching, listening to that you can recommend to our listeners? And it doesn't have to be uh, regarding uh, the law, but it can. It can also be what you do just to wind down. So one of my favorite books, it has a really morbid title, but I actually really, it's a beautiful character study and, and love story. And it's called How to Not Die Alone. And it's by Richard Roper. It has a different title in the UK than it does in the US, so I'm, I'm using the US title, but that's actually one of my, my favorite books. Um, I also just read, uh, a friend gave this to me for a Christmas present um, called, it's 
uh, we need to talk about Kevin. It's it's quite old now, but it's about um, a family who raises a, a mass murder, or yeah, mass murderer and a, a school shooter in the U.S. Uh, and I found that just really the the writing is just beautiful and, and engrossing. So that's what I've been reading, and what I've been listening to is Taylor Swift. As anybody who follows me on Twitter knows, it's just on constant repeat. <laughs> Does Taylor Swift give any good advice for uh, uh, following investment law? Is there any uh, <laughs> anything? Well, I mean, she did do a whole thing where she kind of didn't she uh, uh, mess up the people who invested in her songbook where we recording her. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, she really reclaimed her rights there, which is kind of cool. I uh, I kind of think Blank Space is a really good uh, soundtrack, like song to listen to if you're trying to understand investment law. We'll link to that in the liner notes as always. Thank you so much, Tara, for coming to talk to us and giving us uh, ISDS 101. Uh, when we get more into it, uh, maybe we'll get you back and talk more in depth about uh, uh, certain cases. But it was lovely to have you on and lovely to know more about this thing that I'm hearing about because like everybody including my yoga teacher suddenly has a thing against ISDS and it's like don't you don't you know about this because you study international law and it's like no I do war crimes like what are you talking about I don't do corporations so um, it was very good to be educated thank you so much thank you guys for having me this was so much fun for me yeah thank you so much Tara this was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. This episode was recorded at the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development, and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com, and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating, and spread the word.